Welcome to Leaders of Analytics. Leaders of Analytics is about data-driven decision-making, modern business leadership, and the use of data and artificial intelligence in business and society. Each episode investigates the strategies, tools, techniques, and leadership required to succeed in a world increasingly driven by data and analytics. The show's guests share their stories and experiences in a way that helps you understand the big concepts and small details that make all the difference in today's world of business. I am your host, Jonas Christensen, and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaders of Analytics. We are living in an artificial revolution where the balance of power and political influence is shifting towards those who control data and technology. Automation is transforming our economies and making some jobs obsolete. Companies harvest our most intimate secrets and use them to feed us tailored information and sell products. The metaverse is the development of a virtual world with the potential to separate us from the physical world altogether. AI is making our lives more curated and convenient, but at the same time, more complex and exposed. Privacy and ethics have to be programmed by design to avoid digital versions of oil spills and nuclear disasters. I recently spoke to Ivana Bartoletti to understand how humanity can tackle this newfound challenge. Ivana is the Global Chief Privacy Officer at Wipro and an internationally recognized thought leader in the field of data privacy and AI ethics. She's also the co-founder of the Women Leading in AI Network and the author of the brilliant book on the risks and opportunities of AI called An Artificial Revolution on Power, Politics and AI. In this episode of Leaders of Analytics, we discuss why everyone should give heed to the challenges of privacy, ethics, and fairness in a world driven by data. How to balance the trade-off between the benefits of AI and the risks of compromised privacy. How large-scale automation will impact society as a whole. Why data is inherently political. Why women have a special role to play in making AI fair, and much more. Let's get to it, here's Ivana. Ivana Bartoletti, welcome to Leaders of Analytics. It is fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yes, it is so good to have you. We have a lot to talk about today. You have a very interesting job or role. You have a very interesting background. You work in a very interesting organization that is huge. And also you have written an even more interesting book, which is probably going to be what we talk about for the most part in this podcast. But before we get to that, I'm sure the audience would love to hear a little bit about you. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your career background and what you do? With pleasure. So I currently am 
the global chief privacy officer for Wipro, which is a leading company in the area of digital transformation and um, cloud and artificial intelligence, robotics, and sort of helping companies innovate with, with technology and transform digitally. But before then, I was at Deloitte. In where I was a director focusing on artificial intelligence and safeguards and governance around the introduction of, of AI and algorithmic decision making, as well as blockchain and other technologies. And before then, I was working with, was heading up the privacy practice for a consultancy firm in the energy industry, which was really interesting because there was a lot of stuff around smart metering and the grid and, and all of that. But my interest for and sort of privacy stems from a human rights background. So I, I actually started 20 years ago in a from sort of political approach to this. So I was about 20 and I got very much involved in, in human rights, in politics, in, in civil liberties. And that's where everything came from. You know, so I started from, from that approach and that approach that still remains with me, sort of in terms of the way that I see privacy, that I see data protection and artificial intelligence and all of that. So that has been my journey. So coming from sort of a, a more human rights background, going into information security, and then I took a second degree in law and here I am. So how did you end up in this world of technology and AI and, and data through that journey? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because I started in information governance and information security. And when I first moved to the UK, went to the UK, I'm now in Germany, but I went to the UK in 2007. So I already had sort of background in human rights and, and, and civil liberties, but then the focus became much more technical. And I wanted to really combine the technical element with the legal element because I strongly believe that the two are completely intertwined. So I really wanted to, to focus on that. But then when artificial intelligence, when we started to realize that alongside of the wonderful things that technology was bringing into our life, there was a much darker side to it. And then we started to realize that no neutrality of data, when when these concepts became more mainstream, I think I realized that that was the the field where I wanted to be in. And because I think there is nothing more relevant these days than, than sort of the non-neutrality of data, the non-neutrality of technology, when technologies have become so transformative, like for example, artificial intelligence, when they have enormous power, but at the same time, they carry enormous risks. And I think I got to the stage where I felt that I was so much intrigued and so much passionate about new technology and I was starting to really realize how much I wanted to safeguard this new technology and the only way for doing that was not just to learn more and to get involved from the technical side but was also to make everyone aware of, of the risks and trying to find concrete solutions at both technological and political level to try and limit the risks uh, that, that these technologies bring with them. The interesting bit here in this topic for me is the continuous sort of blurring of the lines between being a pure technologist versus being a designer of processes, solutions, products that actually have quite a large impact on people's lives and and play to their minds. There's a lot of psychology in it, whether you like it or not, whether you're aware of how you're affecting people's psychology or not. And I think some of the the best in the trade, the the social media empires out there do know exactly what they're doing, but we'll get to that later in this podcast because I think this is a large foundation for the book that you've written and some of the arguments in there. So we'll definitely explore that. But Ivana, before we get to that, 
I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about what a chief privacy officer does, and especially for a company that, according to Google, has over 220,000 employees. So this is a huge organization. What does a week look like for you? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question because it's the first time that I went in such a such a role. I mean, I've always been sort of advising companies and working with companies. And then I, so this is, I started in September. So there are so many different elements of this job. I mean, and the first element of this job is that privacy is not just about the law and it's not just about technology, you know, but uh, it's how you, and so my first objective and the first objective, I believe, of a global chief privacy office is to break the silo culture that sometimes we still have in organization where you have the legal team on the one hand and then you have the, the CTO team and tech, and then you have the security. And, and then you know that, you know, privacy has to be the thread that binds all of these elements together. And because whether you use personal or non-personal data, then ultimately things do have impact on individuals. And uh, so you have to try and build that culture whereby people understand that privacy is the thread that, that binds every single element together, every single new product that you create. I work in a technology firm, obviously. So all the products that we create, that we put into the market, that we obviously, you know, I have to make sure that there is a, a the privacy is embedded from the onset. I have to make sure that you know, we don't consider privacy as an afterthought. So that is part of my job. And that requires a lot of things. It requires structures, it requires processes. It also requires awareness amongst everyone involved that, um, that we have to ensure that, that privacy is, is there in, from, from the very early on stages. That's the reason, for example, why one of the first thing I did was to establish, is to establish a, a privacy by design forum, bringing together all the different areas to, to try and see how we can really use privacy enhancing technologies and, and privacy engineer to, to, to really support the work that we do. Part obviously of the, of the job is also to ensure that this sort of 220,000, 50,000 actually employees that, that we have, you know, that their data is safeguarded and protected, that the customer's data is safeguarded and protected. And that in a, t- at a time where we are seeing privacy laws proliferating. You know, so privacy laws are everywhere at the moment. You know, in Australia, for example, we're thinking about re uh, sort of updating existing privacy legislation. But then you have Vietnam, you've got China, you have India with the new privacy laws and hopefully coming to life sometime next year, this year, this year and next year. A lot of stuff happening all around the world at the moment, which is great. But at the same time, we're seeing both convergence around some issues, but we're also seeing divergence across jurisdictions. So, and that we have seen a massive legal, but also geopolitical stuff happening around data localization and digital sovereignty and how we share data globally. So these are all of the issues that are at the top of my agenda and my sort of working day. So I have to say there's never been a more fascinating time that now, you know, to be in sort of privacy law and practice. There is a big catch-up to do here because the underlying technology and, and use of data is evolving so fast. And you mentioned the, the words or the phrase privacy by design. It's very novel and new to humans and organizations to actually have to design privacy. It's not been a problem before. And I'm sitting here trying to imagine what it's like to deal with this challenge, which is really cross-national, cross-jurisdictional, but there are no laws that connect across across countries i mean 
maybe in Europe it's the closest uh, because we've got the European Union legislation. But other than that, it seems like a cat and mouse game that the nations will struggle to actually win over, especially multinational corporations that they, that can will move data across borders. How do you see that challenge playing out in the near, medium, and long term? I think what you're saying is very true. I mean, there are two elements at the moment. So we're seeing this really strange thing happening, if you think about it. You know, we're seeing convergence on the one hand. So, for example, if, if you look at the PIPL in China or the sort of legislation in India or, or the GDPR and sort of legislation in Brazil, some themes like transparency, fairness in automated decision-making or sort of the, the right of the individuals have to control where the data goes, you know, they, these are enshrined in laws, you know, with all the cultural differences, obviously. So, for example, in China, you know, things will apply different in public and private sector. But the bottom line is that we are seeing a desire coming from people to, to ha- exert control over their data. So this is and an having the desired transparency with the new affordances in particular, you know, that these technologies have. So we are seeing this across. So it's interesting because on the one hand, we have data protection rising and privacy. On the other hand, we have data protectionism rising. So you have sort of countries wanting to, to with different degrees, but wanting to really be more strict with the way that they share data. And some of it is understandable especially because if you think about it, a lot of big tech companies, they have been, um, we live in, you know, they've been sort of building their fortunes on the data extractivist model, you know, which has often often meant that, you know, there's been data grabbing, especially from sort of some countries rather than others. So it's, it's so to some extent, you know, this is understandable. So some, some reasons underpinning that drive to localization comes from that. Some drive to the localization comes from geopolitical issues. And we're seeing this with Europe, we've seen this, but what is interesting is that within this sort of dichotomy between data protection on the one hand and data protectionism on the other, you always have to wonder, you know, what does the individual get out of it? It's like, what is the benefit from us as individuals and, and as individuals in, in terms of, of our control over data, but also ability as individuals to, to put a stop on sort of sort of data extractivism approach that we, we've had for so long. So I think it's really interesting to see all what is happening. There is legal uncertainty, for example, in Europe around data sharing across the globe. And what we're seeing, for example, is that, you know, some big companies may at some point, I'm thinking about the GAFAM, and and they may be at some point being forced to rethink their organizational model. There is uncertainty around, in in Europe, for example, we have a loophole around what constitutes data transfers. So a lot of this stuff is really scary if you think about it, because, because, of course, you know, this, the, the world is, you know, we live in a global dynamic. So we need to be able to share data across the globe. We need to do so in a way which safeguards people's rights. Of course, we, we don't want intrusion from law enforcement. If it comes, for example, from the EU, when data goes abroad, we have this sort of essential guarantees. So that has to be the same. But ultimately, there are different degrees of protections and across the globe. So I'm hoping, to be fair, Jonas, that we... Organizations such as the OECD will be able to find a way forward with this. I'm hoping in, in a transnational agreement that we'll be able to bring countries together around what are the 
the standards that we need to share data globally. Elizabeth Denham, who used to be the information commissioner in the UK, said, you know, we need a new Bretton Woods for data. And although I don't particularly like the terminology, but I think it's true that we need to get countries around, together around how do we share data globally? What are the standards that we're going to use? And I think there is something to be said around the role of international organizations within this. You know, so the, the OECD, for example, which is already driving some work in this area, which stalled for some different some views between the US and Europe. But you know, and Asia, for example, in this in this consideration could be a real force because there are so many interesting developments happening in Asia, especially in the area of data sharing. So I'm hoping that we can drive this conversation on how we move forward beyond the law, because I mean, with you know, beyond the law on, on a new agreement to what it means for data to be shared across the globe. Yeah, it's such a big and interesting topic that, that we just don't know all the answers to yet. And um we're going to dive a little bit deeper into this now because I'd like to shift to your book um, that you've written. I think a year or two ago it was published. And this book is called An Artificial Revolution on Power, Politics and AI. Could you tell us what this book is about and why you wrote it? Thank you. So I wrote this book because I was realizing that the issues around sort of misuse of data, misuse of um, were becoming more and more prominent. Especially thanks to the amazing work that some some activists and leaders, and, and especially women of color, you know, especially uh, just just one among everyone, you know, Sophia Nobel or, or Joy Bonambini, or and also women like you know Meredith Whitaker, and have been doing it in, in this space. So I think over the last few years, we have realized that you know, alongside some really fascinating advances of technologies. We've also come to realize that there are inherent risks with the, with, for example, artificial intelligence and algorithmic decision making. But what struck me is that, you know, we had these amazing voices from this fantastic, especially women who are at the forefront of all of this. And to an extent, I always say my book is really testament to, to what they have done. And I really wanted to, to, to really name them and to, to, you know, to honor the amazing work that they've been doing. But I also realized that I wanted to bring these issues to the kitchen table. So I wanted to write something very simple to digest for these conversations to move from technologies and, and the area of, of activism, which is crucial, and I consider myself, you know, to be, an, I mean, it's, it's a word that, I'm, that I like, to the wider realm of politics and political parties and, and international organizations. And But I wanted to bring it to the people, you know, just I wanted to, to explain to people that actually there is nothing strange or difficult or about these topics. And when we talk about data, when we talk about AI, when we talk about algorithms, they're actually talking about something very simple because we're talking about people, we're talking about individuals, we're talking about we're talking about politics, we're talking about geopolitics. And these are topics that everyone needs to talk about. So that's how it, it, it came about. You know, the idea of wanting to bring something really simple to people to understand. Yes, there's, there's something great happening about tech and we all love it. But if we love technology very much, we've got to also deal with, with the risk and we have to ensure that technology works for everyone. So, and also I was realizing that I was very struck by the link between sort of the role of algorithms increasingly having 
an editorial function in our life, increasingly deciding what we get exposed to and what we see and, and on top of having an allocative function. But the editorial function, so the idea that, for example, the way that we perceive the world and the way that we read about the world when we browse on the internet is mediated by these machines, you know, that are set to to give us certain newsfeed based on our backgrounds and our browsing history and, and sort of and the link between, for example, sort of the rise in populism, which is uh, fueled by the eco chamber effect of, of this of, of these albums, and for example, the rise of, of this sort of the link between the rise of populism and the connection between all of this and the anti-feminist bashing, anti-women sort of bashing arguments. That so to an extent, I I wanted to bring all of this. To life in a very simple way. So that was why it was written. And I'm glad that particularly younger generation, I'm seeing, for example, students or both in secondary school and first so first or second year of university, they quite easy to, to read. And a lot of students have been using it to, to familiarize with these topics. And that was my aim, you know, that's the objective. Yeah, that's really neat when I hear that. That uh, I think that's great because that is also a generation that in a sense, has had their whole life online. Some of us are old enough to remember the offline world before the internet, but uh, there's a generation there that for them, it's second nature to put everything online, but uh, actually you you need to be very careful with that, which is uh, one of the central points in the book, I suppose. You think a lot about this curated world that we get presented all the time when we uh, have our heads stuck in our phones or Netflix or what have you, which is now a large part of our day. And I often use the example of Facebook because Facebook is one, uh, maybe two pieces of software. If you look at the phone app versus the desktop, the website solution, but within these two pieces of software are three and a half billion individual news feeds. And that's not the software doing that. That's the data. That's the private data, the connections and all that stuff. So we're all getting our own curated view. And it really struck me the other week when someone in my network who I have seen the last few years become more and more populist, as you call it, sort of very one-sided in their views and so on. They said, have a look at this photo on Facebook. And they showed me the, the Facebook and I, I just happened to... As you do, because your thumb's now wired to scroll, I scrolled a couple of posts down and it was just one after the other of, of this very curated information that confirmed one type of view that this individual uh, has carried increasingly for the last few years. So it really struck me in, in that moment. I wasn't surprised, but it sort of crystallized it for me there. And what is all this doing to us as individuals and as a collective society, all this curation? Yeah, I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? So as a collective, as a society, you can think, you know, so what, what happens to democracy if we all see different things? You know, the, the basis of democracies is you and I, we can discuss common grounds, but if that common ground is disappearing because we all get exposed to different things, what are we going to talk about? <laughs> so I find that really scary. And I think, you know, we really have to just stop and think and about what is going on and the risk for democracy. I'm also concerned about the sort of the more like representational harms, you know, that happens in society. So, for example, the fact that that by doing, you know, that how much are we actually crystallizing stereotypes by doing that? You know, so for example, one of the things that I am very concerned about the about the sort of 
the, the use of the systems on Facebook or other social media is obviously an organization like Facebook, they need to, and, and similar, you know, they earn money by, you know, how many times, you know, the users will click on a particular advert because they have to say, you know, the clients are the, are the, the, the companies that advertise on Facebook or other systems. But obviously, if they want people to click on things, they to maximize their, their efficiency and for something to be efficient, obviously, it means that it will have to rely on what historically has been efficient. So for example, let's say that you're, you're selling a product to, I don't know, to clean the house, for example. Historically, women have been cleaning the house more than men. So then you will continue to advertise this kind of product to, to a female audience because traditionally and historically, this is what's been happening. Because you, I mean, the company or similar companies, they would want to maximize their result and the results for their, for their clients. So they would want people to click on that kind of advert. But by doing so, we're not breaking with the past. We are algorithmically, and in, in the way, we are softening the past into, into the present and the future. And this is the sort of trade-off between the sort of the fairness and, and efficiency. But these machines, they're programmed to be efficient. So they are programmed for people to click and therefore to for people to be attractive, they have to basically have the past baked in because they have to perpetuate the past so that people continue to click on that. But by doing so, we really, you know, we need to continue to recreate these sort of self-fulfilling prophecies. We're never moving on. So this is what scares me the most. You know, the fact that we are just basically reproducing the past and the sort of the most dangerous display of this is in the predictive technologies used, for example, by law enforcement. I mean, that is just something else. But on the social media side, what really scares me is from societies, I mean, to Kate Crawford calls it representation of the heart. And she's right. You know, the idea that you basically kind of reproduce the same stereotypes over and over again. And this is, for example, where I would like to see a shift in, in the way that we globally perceive things like discrimination law. You know, we see this discrimination, anti-discrimination law is a very static thing. You know, you discriminate based on the way that we live now. But I would like a global shift to see this in a more progressive way, in a way of saying, you know, anti-discrimination is a journey, you know, so we just don't base things just on what is this baseline now, but on where we would like to be as a society. It's becoming so difficult now with all these things being automated, because basically, like, you know, you're basically baking everything as it is now, which is not great, into things that really influence the way that we think, the things that we see. They wrap so much control about us and they just put us, by putting us in particular clusters, they and therefore wanted to maximise the result of the sort of the the advertising campaigns or the recommendation campaigns, then we've got no way out. We're just stuck into what we are perceived to be because historically we've been in a certain way. And there is particularly... There is no incentive for a company to break away from that. Because what is the incentive? You know, if you're not breaking the law and financially you want to maximize the, the, the output, you know, then your you know, fairness is very much becomes very much of, of a political choice. Yeah, it, it, it really is a mind-boggling topic. There's sort of two things I'm picking out of this as you talk, and it's bringing back some memories of the past for me. So one thing you're saying is, one, that we're being programmatically automated to to see certain things. So you're perpetuating what's already been. So we're seeing more of the same and, and only the same. 
and necessarily to program something, the algorithms are, are programmed to optimize in some dimension or some metric, which means that we are getting the best result in this metric, which is then necessarily either compromising or completely excluding other important metrics. Um, and I'm reflecting on a, a job that I had some years ago where I did a lot of PR in that role and uh, that involved the getting stories in the newspaper and so on. And this is not so long ago that we didn't have a digital newspaper environment. And I found a good way to get lots of stories in the paper uh, because I figured out what made the journals um, tick, which was they were always looking for a story for the next day. That's part of their their metrics that they have to fill the papers. But also when they called me and said, this was a great story, we're excited about it. It was when it got lots of clicks. So then they rotate the stories on their website. And then if my story happened to be uh, click worthy, it would stay at the top for longer. And, and that was great. That was great. And that was the type of content that, that survived and lived on. And I could supply more of that. But at no point was there a critical voice saying, well, is this content, it was factually correct. I mean, I had my own ethics around it, but there wasn't a deep investigation of what I brought to the table. And also the metric here was not give information to the people so that they know what they need to know. It was uh, how many clicks can we get uh, on the website, which is again, uh, we've created this environment full of everything can get measured. So therefore we optimize it. It's, uh, it's good in one sense, but also dangerous in another sense. So we're talking about here AI. So if we contrast AI a bit, what is good about AI and what is bad about AI? So, I mean, first of all, AI is, is such a broad topic and term, I mean, but um, I think the was good and was bad. I think we have seen a lot of really interesting things happening out there. And, and I think people realize that AI is, is not, one of the things that I is, is, strikes me is that when people think about AI and sort of talk about AI, we're still, and this is like also a fall that comes, I think, from, from the media, is very much, you know, they think about Terminator, right? So AI is seen as the robot, the rising. So, but in reality, there is much more to it. You know, AI is a, a, you know, we, we're already, it's already baked in, in in a lot of things that we do. Everybody uses, uh, is, uses Google Maps. I mean, chatbots uh, bots are everywhere. And so there is a lot of AI already in our life. And and I think a lot of people would recognize that is 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 generally a good thing. You know, a lot of people say, well, actually, a lot of the automation that is going on and is perceived by, by people being good and I don't blame that you know if you think about the pandemic and how we've 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 been able to be all connected how we've been able for example to have sort of doctor's appointments online virtually how we've relied on on self-checking symptoms um of self uh, yeah self-symptoms checkers I mean there's been a lot of good stuff and in general I think you know I think people citizens do feel the positive element of automation alongside what is sometimes uh, alongside all the issues around job losses, you know, so there's a lot of training society about how robots are going to take over and take our jobs. And, and again, this is a very polarized debate because, and it's not unhelpful one, because it shifts, it moves away the responsibility from policy making to automation. I mean, these are things that require policy solutions and politics is only just coming to terms with this. But there's no doubt that some automation, particularly in certain areas, ought to be welcomed. I mean, if I think about automation in the energy industry, for example, if I think about automation in, in areas that are traditionally more dangerous for humans, and now robot can actually do go and do these things, whether it's going high, high in electricity, fix electricity, or whether it's, it's oil in, in... So a lot of this stuff is actually good 
and you know, it's part of the progress that we make as humans, you know, to just to, to improve and to better our society. And when it comes to some of the debt or the pitfalls in, for example, in relation to in relation to job losses, you know, that's where politics must come in. You know, is you know, that's where we have to think long term about what is the concept of labor, what does it mean, you know, what does it mean labor? What does it mean when you know you're not taught a particular task by a human as it used to be in the past, but actually, you know, you're automated even the learning process. I mean, what does that all mean in terms of identity, in terms of, of financial? I mean, this is a massive political discussion. But the bad thing I believe are very much the ones related to the lack of transparency and control around what we're bringing in. And what I mean by that is that we can't see these problems in isolation. When people say to me, what is bad out there about AI? How can you, you can't distinguish between the technology and the wider issues that we've got around all this. For example, antitrust and, and you know, the big power that some companies have and the fact that we are in uh, an you know, problems that, for example, the European Union and the US are trying to, to, to really curb. I mean, if I think about the US and, and Lena Khan and the FTC and the new trends towards really curbing antitrust to, to, with, anti, with severe antitrust policies and making the approach there is very much making privacy part of that, you know, it is difficult. One of the reasons why we have, you know, we're seeing some really bad things about technology is also because of a lack of, so for example, bias emerging to technologies or, you know, the bad seeing things that we've seen or, for example, what happened in the UK two years ago where the students could not take their exams and an algorithm was used to replace the, the exams and was used to predict the grade of the students. And then what happened is that the, the algorithm was automatically given a higher grade to, from, to students coming from private education than to students coming from state education, regardless of their F and, and the actual situation. These are the bad things we're seeing. But these bad things we're seeing, they're not because of the technology. They, Of course, there are affordances within these technologies, but they are because of the lack of control of controls that we have and the lack of understanding that this technology, the controls around how these, these systems are created, the transparency around it, and the the lack of complete understanding around the, the affordances and the potential that these technologies have with them. The case, for example, the exam in the US, you can't blame it on the algorithm. You know, you blame it on the individuals that have created their systems. And if you think about, you know, the context, it's not surprising at all that that was the outcome. So I think it's it's very difficult to say what's good and what's bad. I think it's it's really understanding that AI is part of, of and forms part of something much bigger. To an extent, is and, and it cannot be seen in isolation from many other issues, including the way that our market is dominated by a few companies. And these issues are completely intertwined. And this is why I think there is a serious action taken by some jurisdiction. Think about the where the UK, where so the EU, sorry, where there is a real tsunami legislation coming next year to try and, and govern all these issues together. Yeah, we say that data is the new oil, so uh, I might use the analogy of uh, some of these things being akin to a, a digital oil spill, where you actually need that regulation around how these things are, are governed so that we don't make them go out of hand by, may I say, amateurish approaches sometimes to, to how these things are built. So that exam example from the UK is a famous one and a terrible one where the algorithm's gone in and, and di dictated the grades based on, uh, yeah, I don't know what variables have gone into it, but then... Um, 
on average, it might be have been reasonable, but I'm sure every individual <laughs> felt that it was very unreasonable. So, so you can see how this is a great example of, of this situation. If we don't be careful and we just play around with AI, like it's you know my first chemistry set or what have you, uh, create damage uh, that is large in society. I agree, but there's also something else. You know, it feels as if you say we thought they were gone. You know, like think about physiognomy or, or phrenology, you know, all these things, they, they, to an extent, all things, a lot of things that we thought that were completely gone, that they, they seem to come back to AI. You know, somebody said, and they, I just like love this sentence, you know, said, you know, it should be common sense that you do not judge people on the basis of what they look. But then with AI, we, you've lost the common sense and these things have come back. So now you have face systems, you know, that they look at the way that you move your mouth or you, you behave, you know, your face in your movement to then draw conclusion on how you are as an individual, for example, the trustworthiness or, you know, based on facial traits. And this stuff is stuff that was ruled out decades ago, centuries, you know, it's like, and, and then it's coming back. And it's actually bringing back to an extent racist theories, isn't it? You know, it, it feels as if because of this hype, we are not thinking. And this is why you know, I was relating all this to the wider sort of um, um, issues around around um, to trust and and uh, the dominance in the market of certain companies. You know, <laughs> these things are really coming back. This this horrible things that that we thought they were gone. And again, you know, we're having a debate at the moment on whether certain things should be banned or whether certain things should be regulated and governed just as high risk. I mean, this is a debate that we're having in Europe because of the European AI Act. It's an interesting debate because it's not just about the European AI Act, but it really goes to the heart of what we're talking about. You know, in the past, people would say, well, a knife is a knife, you know, it's technology to an extent. You can use it to kill, you can use it to cut a piece of food. So actually the issue is the use and not the product in itself. And they tried to bring this to, to AI as well. But I completely disagree with his approach because the technologies such as the sort of related to um, the phrenology ones that they were, we were mentioning, they have affordances. So the ability to then introduce races by the back door, for example, you know, we've got to really be careful too. So we have, there's an argument. So we have to be careful in saying it not ending up a sleepwalking into legitimizing things that are not good for society simply by deeming these things as high risk, thus, you know, wrapping controls around them. But wrapping controls about them and say, yeah, we'll put these controls, then you basically will just legitimise it. And I do think that we have to stop and think, do we want to legitimise these things? Or do we want to say that, for example, things like phrenology-based, they should be just banned, rather than even, to some extent, adulterated by saying that they can be of some use. And this is not an easy discussion. And it's a one I do not have an answer to because, again, because, you know, you, we live in a society that where, you know, for every fact, there is an, an, an under fact, which is the opposite fact, which has, you know, the, the, the same importance. But to an extent, I don't know the answer to this because if I think about hospital setting, I'm often told that particularly for people who are in in you know, the study of the face and the movements could be really useful, for example, to help with understanding what people that in hospital, when they are, are not able to, to, to speak, what they feel in terms of pain or desires. Or, and I'm like, well, who am I to say that is not true? You know, it's, it's, it could be true and it, maybe it is. Therefore, 
that could be a good use of, of this kind of, but how do we prevent this from not sleepwalking into something which is actually very dangerous? I think this is why we must really be careful to people say AI is just a new piece of technology. I mean, no technology is ever neutral, but particularly when the affordances, so the possibility and the capabilities that these technologies have, when they are so transformative and dangerous, as we've seen with AI, then we really, you know, we've got to stop for a moment. I mean, in my book, I make an analogy with nuclear, but I don't make it because I think it's, it's, it's an academic exercise. You know, nuclear, some people see it as a good thing if it's done in a certain good way. You know, now we're investing in, in, in the fourth generation nuclear and, and all of that. But if you think about how much we fought together around nuclear, how much campaigning there has been, how much protest around it, and how much international negotiations, discussions we've had around nuclear. I mean, think about you know the Iran the, the, the deal with Iran and and you know how much you know how much has been dominated the headlines. So what I'm saying is we probably need the same amount of discussions. We probably need the same amount of opposition, the same amount of demonstrations, the same amount of sort of public alert. We need people to be alert to, to the risks. And, and to an extent, we do not perceive the risks in the same ways that we see with the, with the nuclear movement, because it's the way that these things are presented and adulterated to us. The way that as soon as you raise your hand, your hand and you say, I have a problem with this, you're perceived as somebody who is anti-technology, anti-future, they, we want all to go back and live in caves, you know, and, and this is wrong because I'm the first one to talk about the risks, but it's because I love technology, not the opposite. So we can't have a really nuanced discussions around all this, and this is really dangerous. And the way for society, I believe, to really invest in the systems in a good way, avoid that we become even more polarized, avoid that, you know, these systems play a role in breaking up our societies and democracies and avoid that we bring back and software racism in the systems. And, and, you know, the way is to have public awareness, democratic controls, and even if need be, people will say, no, we don't want this. And by saying it, we can have a discussion. But this seems very, very difficult, doesn't it? Every time you express some doubt, you know, as, as you know, you're seen as sort of, I don't know, somebody coming like centuries, millennials ago, wanting to go back to that situation. It's not true at all, isn't it? Well, you're making me reflect on uh, probably what's been two and a half years of the rise of nationalism around the world. Oh, that's probably a little bit longer, but we've had demonstrations in the US with sort of, I call them nationalists or whatever you want to call them, storming the Capitol Hill there. You've had around the world anti-vaccination rallies, freedom rallies, anti-lockdown rallies, all this stuff Yeah, called populist and, and also an increasing nationalism. And you could argue that social media is uh, helping to which is AI, which is helping to, one, fuel the sentiment, but also helping to organize people with relative ease. So why don't we have anti-Facebook, anti-Twitter rallies, uh, people fighting against this taking over of our minds yet? That's an interesting one. But first of all, because I think a lot of people like them and you can't blame them, can you? I mean, you know, if people love sharing the photos of their kids, you know, if they're moved, you know, although it's, it's something that, you know, you say, People love it because it, you are in you know, the world where we're very mobile, not now with the pandemic, but in a world where we can share our histories, some nice moments with others. 
So and try and live without this. You know, try and live without Amazon, without Google, without Facebook. You know, the, the ones who made these experiments will probably lasted like a few days. It's impossible. This is the reason why the issue cannot be seen in isolation from other issues, including competition, including antitrust, including privacy. These things are all intertwined, although by no means I don't want to be seen as somebody who wants to govern privacy through competition. They are two, one is about functioning in the markets and the other one is about human rights. So for me, they are very separate. And yet, and yet, there is a greater relationship than ever between the two. So I think what we're seeing at the moment is that people would like to exert this control. So they would like to, to be able to say, I don't, you know, I want a version of Facebook, which is more, you know, private, which is more, doesn't rely on this system. If you ask individuals, they would tell you. I mean, all the surveys that have been conducted around sort of privacy laws getting more and more prominence in countries and this proliferation of privacy laws, they also happening because there is a demand for them. To the point that some people, erroneously in my view, believe that there is a paradox between what people believe and what actually what people do in reality. You know, some people say, well, you know, people say that they care about privacy, therefore, but at the same time, they do put photos of their kids on Facebook. They do buy on Amazon. And I always respond, but what are they supposed to do? There's no alternative to them. You know, what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed not to use Google Maps? I like Google Maps. Why should there's nothing else? What am I supposed to do? And even the privacy preserving measures that these big companies are bringing in because of popular demand and regulatory action, they are entrenching the power, not the centralizing it, right? So, so that's why you can't really see these issues as separate from antitrust and competition. And this is why there is the action taken by the FTC in the US. This is what well, we've seen similar things happen in Australia. But this is also the reason why the European Union is saying, well, actually, we need to have a real tsunami here. And there is a Digital Governance Act. There is a Digital Services Act, the Digital Marketing Act, the AI Act. All these things, they have one thing in common, which is ensuring that the benefit of this digital age, they're a little bit more diversified and they do not just benefit the few of your names. So the reason why I'm saying all this is because... <laughs> Often I'm told, yeah, but you know, people say this, but they don't care. But they, no, you know, it's you. Can you have a movement of it against Facebook? Well, you have a few people saying, you know, we should not have it. You know, sometimes I read it. You know, yesterday, for example, when some of the patents around Meta were made public, those people saying, no, we've got to get rid. But you know, I like things to be real and, and battle to be winnable. And to me, the real battle to win here is to ensure that we organize our markets in a way with, which, you know, if there is something that is different from Google or something that is different from one of these big companies, has the, the freedom, the liberty and the space to be available. And at the moment, and this is about good markets, this is about good economy. This is about, I mean, to an extent, the FTC is moving under that mantra, you know, this is the purpose of antitrust, this is the purpose of, of good competition, to enable a lot of products to come out and for the strongest ones and the better ones to remain in the market. And the functioning of this is really, really important. But there is absolutely no doubt that countries like China, the US, the EU, they're all, you know, coming to terms with the issue of, of the big company and to try all of all of us and it's not surprising it's not surprising because we've had for a long long time we had little regulation around all this 
So we've let the system and infrastructure and grow a little bit wild in the last decades. And now we're coming to terms with the problems. So very difficult, in my view, to see things as, as separate, that we have to see sort of the bigger picture, which is very much related to the markets and, and all of that. Yeah, interesting. And you're making me reflect on the fact that we, often being the state or government in a jurisdiction, have controlled or even broken up monopolies in the past. So that would have been monopolies on goods and services, but now we're uh, we're experiencing monopolies on information. There's a similar iteration of that, but now in, in an information and privacy setting that we're probably going through here. So yeah, it's going to be so interesting to see how uh, that plays out. And you're also making me think about something else, Ivana, which is in your book, you argue that data is capital. And you also say that it is political. So therefore, the data products that we create, these AI solutions are political product. Could you elaborate on what all that means? Yeah. So this kind of comes from one specific um, discussion that I've had where, I mean, of course, I mean, these topics have been, have been in public domain, but I remember a discussion that I had a few years back and it was an international conference. It was based in China, but the person who told me it was not from China. And, and I was having this conversation and there was a politician minister coming from a country and we were having a conversation. The person said to me, well, who's going to need politics moving forward? We've got AI data. You know, we can just base, base on data. We make on the, you know, we'll make the best decisions for our people. And I'm sorryfied because when I was 16, I had the privilege to study abroad when I was in, I was in, living in Italy at the time, but I had the privilege of studying abroad. And I went to the US in Syracuse in New York State. And I had the experience of living in both a, going to school in two schools. One was in, in a school downtown and one was a school in the suburbs. The, the biggest difference that I remember with the between the two schools you know I'm 42 I was 16 at the time so it was a long time ago and I still remember the main difference being the amount of control that there was between the two schools and by control I just I don't mean you know by control it means I mean you know how many times I was checked how many times my documents were checked how many times my everything was checked about me and the difference between the two schools was that one the first one was I was checked a lot of times was mainly black and the second school was mainly white so I realized that actually there's nothing neutral about data collection, nothing neutral at all. And I also realized that the when people give out stats about how much violence, how much incidents, how many, how many incidents, how many episodes of you have in a particular area, that depends on how much capability you have to go and, and check all these incidents. You know, so obviously, you know, if for example you want to define, you want to say what is an area which is more dangerous and the other was less dangerous, you know, going back to my experiments when I was in the US. I obviously, and that has ma massive implication, right? Because you say which area is more dangerous, or less dangerous. So driving in massive implications on say house prices, the future of the people who live there, you know, the investments made in the particular area. Then obviously, data collection will represent the amount of people who are going to, to actually be the data has been collected from. So in the particular area where you have more control, more data is going to be collected with massive consequences on the output. So I realized very young, and that was an huge part of my upbringing and my human rights-driven approach to privacy, that a data collection exercise is never, never a neutral exercise. The same happens with, for example, victimless violence, right? If you ask how many women are victim of abuse, 
you know, you get a very different result if you're asking women themselves or if you're asking police officers or if you're asking the police forces. So there is nothing neutral about a data collection exercise. There is nothing neutral about a choice for who is going to end up in a database and who is going to be left out in a database. Somebody is in a position of power to make that decision. And, you know, how can you say that data is neutral? So how can you say that we can use data to make decisions around the future? That was a mind-boggling ex- experience. You know, I was like, how is that possible? And But actually, when data collection is basically a product of a decision on somebody being in a position of power, making decisions around who ends up in a database, how can you tell me that an unscrutinized, unfettered and unchecked use of this data is going to then drive the decisions around policy allocations, assignment of resources, let's say, for example, technologies used to predict crime in a particular area, predict crime, you know, taking away the most important thing in life, which is, you know, to end up somewhere different from where you started, you know, this just like the self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, you think because historically the data that you've got, you think this area is going to be more risky, this family is going to end up into crime, this kid is going to end up into crime, you wrap control around them, that control is only going to make things worse, not better. I mean, how would you feel if you're more controlled? So I just started to think that there was something really, really wrong. And that, although at the age of 16, 17, John, I don't, I didn't really realize all that, obviously. I mean, I realized it was very much in my mind. I didn't have the knowledge at the time to really elaborate on that. Then it all came back and then coupled that with my feminist upbringing. You know, so where I realized that, again, that there was a form of violence in data collection, which had also a gender-related element. Then I, I just thought, well, you know, we've got to wake up. You know, we can't really think about data in, in this really sort of, as data was like this sort of incredible thing that we have, which is, I mean, it is important. I am very concerned about missing the opportunities that data give, gives us. You know, I work for a company where I want to harness the value of the data for the benefit of people. So I have, again, I am in no way anti-leveraging the use of data. No way. I mean, think about the pandemic. But I am all in favor of understanding the dynamics underpinning data to make sure that we are able to put enough controls around it, but also to make sure that even if we've got all the controls in place, to understand that there is not enough technical controls that we can put in place to solve a problem which is actually historical and political. So that I always say it has to be a choice that an organization makes as well to say where do they want to go, how do you know, because just for you know, to as much, you know, for as much as you can do technically or massaging the data and doing you know whatever you can do with the data, but to make it more sort of to avoid the the sort of the perpetuation of, of the past, but then ultimately it's too big of a problem for technology to solve it alone. You know, it's actually a political decision. I think it was Ruben Binz, who used to work for the Information Commission in, in the UK, and he, he needs to be credited with some of the amazing work that's been done by the Information Commissioner on, on, on AI and some really sort of cutting-edge work that's been doing. But he said, you know, that, that um, being fair in, in AI is it's very much of a... Of a, is a decision that needs to be made by company, conscious social decision that needs to be made by companies. Yeah, and I think data and AI actually has an opportunity to be 
very full of empathy for the individual and you can actually find things, patterns, even automate them uh, if you're there, but you could find things out about people that can be used to be very empathetic to the individual that otherwise would get lost in the messes. So I can see that you're on this mission to do this. So I think that's great. Ivana, I have got three questions left for you. One you will answer in as long as you want and the other two are quick. So you have taken an initiative here to write a book, but you've also taken the initiative to co-found an organization called Women Leading in AI or Network. Could you explain to us what this network is about and why it's so important to drive this female agenda on the topic of AI? Yeah, so this network was started um, a few years back when it was 2018 and we were a group of friends and we coming from different backgrounds. It was coming from sort of privacy law and then people coming from technology, more like data science and then lawyers and business people, campaigners. So we were just sitting there. We were thinking about, it was a few days before International Women's Day. So we were sitting there, we were thinking about there's something really strange about International Women's Day. You know, we think about what's going to happen to, but we're sort of pondering over sort of the journey that we as women have gone through. And then we we realised that all the things that we've been trying to, to fight against and some have achieved. So, for example, not being discriminated when applying for jobs and not being discriminated when applying for a loan. <laughs> they were actually being reintroduced by AI in unscrutinised, unchecked manner. And not discriminating on the ground of the skin, colour of the skin. You know, then you think about facial recognition and, and how much you're discriminating against women of colour. So we were just sitting there and we were like, oh my goodness, you know, it's like we have been fighting so hard. And then these things have been brought back. And that reminds me of that sort of that fact that we seem to have lost a lot of common sense with AI just because it's cool. And, and so we said, you know what, we should call an assembly at the London School of Economics and we should just like call an assembly and see what comes and and start something on this. And also because, I mean, there, there were organisations that like the AI Now Institute that were doing amazing work on this. So I wrote an article in The Guardian and I wasn't expecting the, the, the result and I wasn't expecting the outcome. And then we had a, this event and analysis and a lot of women came. And so it was really good. And the aim is not only to bring more women and more diversity into the into the decision into the coding rooms. I mean, obviously that is important, right? Bias in AI comes from many different reasons, not just because of the data, for the parameters, measurement, aggregation, and obviously the scrutiny that is given is, is stronger when there is a more diverse workforce because things can be seen that couldn't be otherwise seen. So, and also because uh, having a more diverse workforce means that the people were going to be impacted the most and the most vulnerable they can be represented in a room. But I think that was one of the of the issues that we wanted to, to deal with. The most important one, in my view, was to have more women at the top of the table where the decisions around the AI are made. So not just coders, not just women in technology, but actually women leaders in parliaments, business, uh, or international organizations to define the norms around AI. So that was the thing. So we wrote a paper with the principles for trustworthy AI and then introduced a lot of ideas and, and that, you know, we were not the only one, obviously. I mean, the strength of this movement is that you're part of something bigger. 
and you play your part in your constituency, but then obviously your part is something bigger. And we had a lot of resonance and it was good. We worked with the European Commission, with the European Parliament, with comes from Europe and, and we've been growing. And, and it's a really important network because we offer a space of once a month, we meet up online, we discuss the big ideas coming, all the regulatory responses. So it's not just about women in technology, yeah? women in AI, it's really women in in really policy making around AI. And we can share you know, experiences that we're having, how we are coding sort of privacy and fairness into the systems, what policies we're putting in place as, as leaders in our respective fields. So I would encourage sort of lead, not just, I mean, women, this is an organization led by women. But you know, men, you know, when we have events, men and women come in or whoever, you know, so, so whoever is open to anyone. But the leadership is female. That's the whole purpose. Yeah, wonderful. That is a real important purpose um, that uh, even though I'm not female, I can totally subscribe to. So thank you for that. Now, I promised you two questions here at the end, Ivana. So the first one is, I always ask the guests to pay it forward on the show. So my question to you is, who would you like to see as the next guest on Leaders of Analytics and why? I but actually would like to suggest a guy called Claudio Malgeri who I think is doing some excellent work on vulnerability in the systems and what it means to be vulnerable in the digital ecosystem, what it means to be vulnerable in privacy law. And it works very closely with Frank Pasquale, but I think it'd be a really extremely interesting voice to, to, you know, to bring to a wider audience. And I really hope that you can call him. Brilliant suggestion. And I will definitely follow that one up. Last question, where can people find out more about you and get a hold of your content? Yeah, so my website, which is easy, is ivanabartoletti.co.uk and also Twitter. Yeah, so I think that's the best way. Fantastic. Now, listeners, I really encourage you to check out Ivana's book called An Artificial Revolution. I found it very insightful and as she's already mentioned, very easy to read and interpret as well. It really makes you think about the world that we live in right now and also as a data enthusiast, the role and responsibility that we have to create the future that we want and avoid one we don't want. Ivana, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate your time. I know you have to go and put your superwoman cape on and go and save us all and make sure that we keep our privacy around the world. On behalf of listeners and the global community in general, thank you so much for doing what you do and making sure that AI turns out the way we actually want it to turn out in the next 10, 15, 20 years. Really appreciate it. All the best. Thank you for joining in today. Thanks to you for having me. Really enjoyed it.